Welcome to The Future of What, the show about what's going on in the music business. And right now, Received Wisdom says that the future of music belongs to streaming. According to Nielsen SoundScan, digital download sales fell in 2013, and streaming was up 54%. It may surprise some people, however, to hear that physical formats such as vinyl, cassette, and even the lowly CD are holding strong and even flourishing. Today, we're going to talk to some of the people who make a living from these hot formats, starting with Burger Records, a label who have reportedly sold over 300,000 cassette tapes in the last eight years. We'll also talk to Amanda Brown, head of the labels Not Not Fun and 100% Silk, about why she's chosen not to become a digital person, and to Anna Bond, U.S. label head of the legendary Rough Trade Records, about what the new global release date means for sales of music in physical formats. We'll end our show with journalist Gavin Godfrey talking about the strong sales of hip-hop mixtapes on CD at such alternative venues in Atlanta as gas stations and barbershops. It's all coming up here on The Future of What. Sean Borman and Lee Rickard are the co-founders of Burger Records. They're joining us by phone from their office in L.A. Sean and Lee, welcome to the Future of What? Thank you very much for having us. This is Sean. And this is Lee. Hey, women. <laughs> We're going to be switching off the phone, so uh, it's going to be a wacky, wacky interview. It's going to be a wild ride. Yep. Okay. Our favorite kind. So why did you come up with Burger Records? Why Burger? Yeah, why Burger? Well, I'll tell you... I'll tell you the story. <laughs> so, sit back, relax. Okay. In 1993, I was 10 years old, and it was the first time I traveled across country in a van with my family for my uncle's wedding. And uh, every diner we stopped at, wherever we had dinner or lunch, whatever, I, I, can't, I, had, a, I had a hamburger. And when I came home, I had a, a 10-year-old epiphany. Uh, I said, I'm a, I'm a burger boy. And so I just knew that. And whether or not, like, I, and I also knew, like, I was going to have my own something, whatever, and it's just, just burger. It's always going to be burger. <laughs> and then, you know, we study rock and roll, and then we have our band, and, you know, all all artists want, you know, creative control and everything, right? You want, you know, you want to mismanage yourself. So paying homage to the Beatles and Apple and Conk and the Kinks and Brother and the Beach Boys, you know, Blimp and the Turtles, like everyone's got their own little, you know, studio or label or all of the above. And uh, so, yeah, we're just, uh, they make out party and burger. Fabulous. That's, that's that. And then eventually we're going to open up the burger joint. It's going to be our our bar grill stage, dance floor, rock and roll museum. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be a hot spot. All the kids going to be dancing all the time, full time, family style. Um, but yeah, that's what we want. That's what we're going to work on in the, in the next few years is, just having our own venue and then our own club, you know, and then uh, that'll be a lot of fun. So we're talking about hot formats today. So, of course, we wanted to talk to you guys since you've been at the forefront of this cassette tape sale explosion. Mm-hmm. So, in uh, in fact, we read that CNN said that Burger has sold more than 300,000 tapes since the label started in 2007. Is that true? 
That's true. We've sold tons and tons and tons of tapes. Whoa, that is crazy. We've put out probably 800 different releases on cassette. Oh, my uh, God. Maybe 775, 750 different bands. Wow. So can yeah. you tell us, how did Burger get into cassettes in the first place? What what was the thought process that led you guys um, to Well, we grew up with cassettes. Uh, we're children of the 80s, but uh, uh, for for our for our purposes, we, we found this band AM, one of our friends' bands, and they had released a cassette on this label, Paper Made, uh, which is run by the Pear Space people, and uh, we really liked it. It sounded great. It looked great, and we had a tape player in our car so we could listen to it. So when uh, we were releasing our album, we were in a band called The Makeout Party, we decided we wanted to cover all formats, so Recess did the LP, Tina Side did the CD, and uh, Burger did the tape. And that was our first tape that we made. And um, then when Makeup Party was on tour, we were sitting in in the parking lot of Kirby's Beer Store in Kansas City and talking about the Burger and the label in Wichita, and uh, and we uh, we just I was like, well, there's all these records that aren't coming out. You know, on tape, all of these records that we really love, like The Go and Apache and Traditional Fools, which were the first three bands we hit up, and uh, and we said, well, why don't we do it? So we started hitting everybody up, and everybody was down, and uh, we put out Nobody's Raw Romance on tape, and that was kind of the one that sparked the uh, the craze <laughs> for us. You know, we sold 500 tapes in a week and a half, Wow! and uh, that was our first kind of big hit, and I think really helped... Uh, push people to start buying cassettes again. That's amazing. So um, you approach the artists because if they're on a record label, they're probably, the label was probably putting out CDs and uh, you say, we'll just do the cassette version. Yeah. And it, you know, it worked with Sub Pop, it worked with Vice, Warner Brothers, Universal. We work with all these different labels and there's almost always no contract or anything. They just say, hey, you want to do this? And we say, okay. Same, wow. Like, with Weezer, we did Beck and Thurston Moore limited edition cassette, and there was never any contracts or anything because nobody is really interested. They don't see it as a threat, really. It's only <laughs> it's only helping uh, because we we do get out to a lot of kids on social media and a lot of people. So uh, it's almost like an advertising budget letting us do the cassette. Right. And everybody everybody wins in a good deal. That's our motto. Right now, when you put out a cassette for someone like you know Weezer. How many of those cassettes would you press as opposed to, like, you know, a small band that you just love but doesn't have a huge following? Uh, for the most part, 250 is about the average of the quantity of cassettes that we make. Uh, it goes anywhere down to 150 for smaller bands that uh, <laughs> that are just starting out. And uh, for Weezer, I think we did 1,000 cassettes, and uh, we sold our half. Uh, in a weekend, in three days, we sold 500 cassettes. And do you ever uh, repress them, or is it really just a one-time uh, thing? It's up to the band. If the band wants to repress, we do. Um, if they're not uh, into it, then we don't. And there's enough stuff going on where where it's hard to really think about the past because there's so much coming up in the future. So uh, we try and repress what we can, but it's a, it's a struggle because there's so much. Our back catalog is very extensive. Let me put Lee on the phone. He'll answer the next question. Okay. Hi. Hi. Lee. Hi. 
Hi. So, so now I was inferring from what Sean said that basically you do like a 50-50 split of cassettes. Like if you make 1000 for a Weezer, they got 500 and you guys got 500 to sell. Um, is that your standard situation? No. Uh, our average is like 250 tapes and we give the band 50 tapes. 50 and you guys sell 200? Yeah. And then do you sell them online yourselves or do they go we out do. to retail stores? Uh, we have... Uh, online store that we also have red eye distribution i know so do we oh yeah so we're we're, uh, distributor mates yeah so they they distribute our tapes for us too that's awesome and they and as well as just touring like you know i mean i think half of our success or even more than that i mean our soul is just from diy and touring for over you know a dozen years or whatever and having a presence at, you know, this little shows all over America and, and, and beyond our borders. And, um, and then as well as like Sean and the internet and like the social media, like superpowers that he possesses, you know? <laughs> uh, but yeah, I think it's, it's a, it's a good balance between just like real world stuff and, and then the, the internet, um, um, mania or whatever, like just the, you know, this modern times, this instant gratification and all this content all the time, you know, like what the kids are into or whatever. <laughs> those kids, whatever those kids are into. So when well, like you the say... millennials, I guess they were born into, into Y2K. Yeah, you know, all they know is the internet. Like they don't know tapes and cassettes and records so much unless, like, now they know because we're, we're releasing so much music on the format, so... If they want to have like a tangible item, then, then you know, I mean, it sounds good on the binary code, but maybe they want a little bit more. They want to step up their allegiance and pledge a few dollars and <laughs> let the world know that, hey, check out my tape collection. You know, I, I'm representing the neighborhood, and and um, you know, I think I think that happens when people love something, they want to support it, and and be able to soak up all the art and enjoy the the artist. So now, who who approaches who? Like, at this point, do you have artists approaching you at wanting to put out tapes, or do you mostly work with labels? Like, how does it work? Oh, we, I mean, there's no telling, like, how we discover bands. I mean, we're solicited dozens of, of, of uh, things uh, every day, and, um, um, you know, our friends and other bands are always pitching us their new favorite bands, and... Um, you know, I mean, it's uh, the more attention we're getting, yeah, it's getting weirder as far as just people like pitching bands to us or whatever. But I mean, we're just, you know, we tour a lot and we're out and about and, you know, kind of know what's happening. And, and then people turn us on and then bands reaching out always. And, you know, it's a pretty good mix. I mean, there's no telling. I mean, we've done a few bands from our demo piles, you know. Uh-huh. And, um, Jail was the first, and then they went on to Sub Pop for a couple records. Now they're back to Burger. We find some really cool stuff in the in the demo pile. It's just a lot of work keeping up with it. No uh, doubt. Just just clutter. It's just like it's just our life is really gnarly. <laughs> we have a lot of tapes that need assembling, and we have stacks of tapes and records and clothes and because we're all we're just just trying trying to make room for ourselves back here. But yeah, it's pretty happening. You guys do all the assembly of the tapes? Uh, 
for the most part, uh, I mean, not all. I mean, um, our distributor has been assembling, like, the ones that they send to our, for distribution. Gotcha. But, I mean, yeah, we're always assembling tapes. I mean, for Wiener Records, our subsidiary, I'm, I'm looking at hundreds of tapes right now that still need assembled. and. <laughs> And uh, there's some burgers in here too, some step panther, fifty step panther that need assembled. But um, yeah, there's just there's always something that needs to be done, and and yeah, we still assemble a lot of uh, the tapes. We don't have cool. to duplicate them ourselves or right. print them, but MC Communications has been handling the the, the brunt of it. Okay, here's your last question. Ready? Okay. You showed a lot of foresight in predicting that people would get back into cassettes. So what do you see as the next hot format coming down the pike? The, the next hot format? This is for me or do you, I can popcorn to Sean? You guys can do it together? Or? This is our last question. And say it one more time. So the, you The you, next big thing? What's the next hot format that came out? I you don't know? know. I mean, there's only so many. I mean, I'm just going to say, all right, reel the reels. I'm going to bring them back. You know what I mean? <laughs> Eight tracks. And we're just going <laughs> to... CDs are going to be hot again. Mini discs are going to be super hot. We're going to make Ooh. them really, yeah. We're going to call them Sweet. sliders. Yeah, uh, <laughs> little CD sliders, burger. Gonna, burger CD gonna, sliders. That's yeah, sweet. Gonna, yeah, awesome. I think that's a good idea. Thanks that is a good that. idea. So we're going to, yeah, can, you can have mini, that. Disc, mini discs are coming back. Uh, CDs will come back. Yeah, sure. Um, records are always cool. Tapes are here to stay. I guess maybe we can try some eight tracks. Yeah, eight tracks, reel to reels, and uh, mini discs. Awesome. Sean Borman and Lee Rickard are the co founders yeah. of Burger Records. They called us from yeah. their office in LA. Thank you. Yeah, we're in Fullerton, California. We're south of LA, about 30 miles, so we don't got all the glitz and glam of the Hollywood <laughs> shenanigans. But we got uh, Mickey Mouse smiling right next door in Anaheim. So awesome. Shout out to, to Mickey and Walt and, and all the big dogs. Say hi to Calvin. Hi, Calvin. And uh, yeah, whoo. Dr. Knowles, here to stay. Thank you. We'll Thank you. Bye. Amanda Brown co-founded the record labels Not Not Fun and 100% Silk with her husband Britt, and over the past 10 years they've released more than 300 records. Amanda and Britt have a reputation for putting their love of music above commerce, especially with their DIY approach. Amanda Brown joins us now from her office-slash-apartment in Los Angeles. Amanda, welcome to The Future of What? Oh, that's such a good name for a show and also one of my favorite bands of all time, so... Oh, yeah, thanks. I uh, I asked them if we could use it, and they were very kind and said yes. You did not ask them. That's incredible. Next time you talk to them, can you tell them that I love them? You bet. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so tell us about the early days of, because you actually started two record labels. Yeah, yeah. Um, when I met my husband, um, uh, we wanted to do something sort of community oriented and we wanted to do something sort of crafty and uh, we had like you know a knack for tinkering on instruments neither of us were very 
proficient. He played the guitar and I played the keyboard, but I say that with like the lightest definition of the word played. Um, <laughs> and we thought with all of these, uh, you know, like things in mind, keeping all these things in mind and meshing them together, what that looked like at the time was a record label and maybe something where we could put out little cassette tapes and set up shows in the community. And the smell was, uh, you know, hugely important uh, culturally and socially here in Los Angeles around that time. And we were very fortunate to be there for a lot of the most important moments in that. So uh, it was very easy for us because the community sort of uh, took to us and we took to them. And there was like this beautiful... Um, fluidity because we were able to support punk and drone and noise and everything that was very prevalent at that time um, and it was easy I, I think hilariously when we had no money and no one had ever heard of us and no recognition it was the easiest it ever was um, and then everything changed <laughs> because of the internet yay and other things that make things change like you know, uh, what it means to even be an independent musician changed. And so therefore, what it means to be an independent record label had to change. And we've attempted to shift over the years. But um, like I said, those early days were sort of a cakewalk because all we had to do was put in every single minute of our time. You know, and at the time you're complaining because you're like, this takes up so much time. But it really was artful and energetic time. Whereas now it's so much about strategizing and specific um, targeting and, you know, considering the media and considering all of these other, you know, whatever, contemporary modes of accessing music and accessing personality and accessing culture and art um, that we have to consider every day. And so it's a different kind of job. Right. So when you're starting out, and let's say I would assume you had other day jobs, it was yes, kind of a of labor of love. Absolutely. But then... You know, I'm, I'm assuming at some point you started making enough money that you were able to quit your day jobs and then it suddenly became a serious full-time job. Yes, that's exactly what happened. And, um, you know, it was it was always like the very first thing on our docket. You know, like our life was very much in service of our label. And, um, you know, we didn't even go on a honeymoon. We didn't, <laughs> we didn't take a vacation. Um, Ever. That was just the two of us. We were only ever taking off time to go on tour or to set up shows or um, to put time and energy back into the label. We really sacrificed sort of our humanity at that time in in honor of it and really our romance in honor of it because that was so important to us. And what that meant then eventually was that, yes, we could quit our jobs and we could do it full time. And so people are always so um, awestruck by that. But really it was a very gruesome a very gruesome first first half a decade of just like coming home from your stupid job and then doing your thankless job and <laughs> <laughs> going to bed like a like you know totally um maybe you hold hands for like 25 seconds before you fall asleep <laughs> before you pass out very unsexy and like just very much like you're a partnership constantly and so we had to go to every show and we had to go to you know, every event and as bands would roll through town, they were staying with us. And I mean, it, it was the epitome of DIY culture and it was what we were raised on. And it was like a Portland aesthetic and an Olympia aesthetic, a Seattle aesthetic. And these were things that we cherished and uh, that obviously had to change and and go away. But I'm still like 
my heart is still in those early days because even though they were brutal, they were when we were doing something that I think, I think really mattered. I don't know. I hesitate to say that um, because no one will know what matters for like another 30 years, but I feel like it mattered. So <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and say it. Well, of course, I also think that that matters. Um, that's yeah. where we came from as well. But um, regardless, on this show today, we're talking about hot formats and particularly physical formats. And your two labels, Not Not Fun and 100% Silk, are known for putting out releases with really fancy artwork. And for most labels, I mean, speaking as a label owner, that is uh, historically the kiss of death. But can you talk a little bit about why it's important for you guys to put out um, beautiful packaging? Um, you know, there's like a there's like an easy answer. That's you know, for me, like the 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 immediate reaction I have to when I hear someone ask me that question or when this is discussed is just that um, I believe in physical objects and I believe in the tactile and I believe in art and I'm not a part of the digital age. I mean, I live in the digital age, but I am not like an active participant of it on a daily basis. Um, So for me, I don't have as much of a relationship with like an MP3, for instance. that doesn't really mean too much to me, though I'm not against it um, as being a nice way to stop leaving a sort of carbon footprint. And I understand that that's like a very, very much like the wave of the future. Um, As much as it is a wave of the present, it eventually we do have to start considering the massive (laughs) waste of thousands of records that that will cease to be able to sell um, and will just become trash. But currently, I feel like when I can touch or hold something, then I have a relationship with it. I have a a spatial relationship to it. And so we've always wanted to continue to make vinyl and cassette. Um, It's just been really important to us. And overseas, it still remains important to make compact discs. So we do that sometimes for releases that are rather popular, like in different countries. but once you have that relationship to the physical object, then you have to say, well, what is it going to be? Like a black piece of cardboard? Is it going to be like a blank white sleeve with a sticker? And then you just begin to dream. And as an artful person who cares about what things look like and cares about holding things, um, you want to get as many artists involved as possible. And then you want them to have as many mediums as possible. And sometimes we've indulged you know, different types of like lenticular art or even like confetti or, I mean, the list goes on. I I wouldn't even be able to scratch the surface of it. But we've tried everything and continue to engage in a conversation of making sure that our records look beautiful um, so that they can be judged by their cover, which is a fine thing. It is completely fine to be in a record store and pick out a record that you've never heard of because it looks good. And um, for those people, we have something. And that, that's important to us, obviously. And that's certainly something that I think fans are responding to. And I feel like that has sort of, you know, in the, in the 90s and aughts, we were seeing a lot of CD sales. And it yeah. really felt during that time like people were less concerned with the quality of the artwork because it was so much smaller now or just different. Um, I mean, I felt that way myself as a music buyer. And I feel like 
it's been the last 10 years or so where people are getting more excited about vinyl. And I think partially it's because you can hold it and because the art is bigger and it's more exciting. You know, there's more going on. It just seems that way to me. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a through line and you have to see it not just as part of a of a lineage. Um, this is how people have been interacting with music for decades and decades and decades. So even when people become obsessed with newness and obsessed with like new complexities in music, there is still that connection to like a person who, you know, in 1920 whatever has a Victrola. I mean, that is still like ingrained in our that's still ingrained in, in our DNA, and that's something that we still reach for and want. Um, but beyond that, there needs to be like a through line in aesthetic. So if we're saying that our music sounds a certain way, made by a certain type of person, and then therefore they want it on a certain type of potentially viewed uh, outdated format, then you also have to imagine that they want their art to look a certain way. I mean, these are full aesthetic people. These aren't just people who know how to work Ableton, you know, they want their release to look like something. They want their music to be associated with a specific look, and that's important to them. So rather than be a record label that, you know, denies them that or, or changes that energy and that focus away from what it looks like, we've chosen to celebrate that and, and you know, make sure that the art looks really stunning or specific or... You know, sometimes artists want something to look really ugly <laughs> or I think it looks really ugly and it's like that's important to them. And so we have to be in dialogue with them about that. You know, it's absolutely it's, it's absolutely. majorly important. And you and your husband do a lot of the art yourselves, right? We do. Yeah. Britt is um, he is much better at like the actual graphic design part of things. Um, and I am like much better at curating the visuals um, but together that means we can sort of create an aesthetic I mean a long time ago we tried to as much as we tried to reach out to new musicians we tried to reach out to new artists and friends who uh, you know took beautiful photographs and and painted and, and asked them if they would partner with us too so that for a while we were supporting like some really incredible artists in the community that were able to sort of put a look to a sound, and that meant that we could go even deeper um, with, you know, I don't want to say underground, but sure, underground culture. You know, like getting getting a three a three sixty with that. So being able to say like we're independent, and we're looking at other independents, and we're looking at other people who are a bit on the fringe of whatever their medium is, and then putting it all together and creating something that um, is super well balanced within that realm. Sure. Absolutely. And I mean, we do the same thing. We've always been extremely artist friendly. And, and what that partially means is is whatever they want to have be their artwork. We say, sure. And that has led us to, you know, plenty of trouble down the line with retail stores not wanting to, you know, print the shoe shoe cover with a naked Vietnamese boy on it. Hey, screw them. Like that. That's dumb. Jamie can have whatever he wants. Like, we've exactly. earned it. I mean, we've exactly. earned it at this point. I know. And I think that that's an important point that a lot of people don't understand is is that musicians are all around artists and everything that they put out is part of their vision. And so we as label owners want to support that. And we don't want to just say, no, you have to look like this because that's what's hot or whatever. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it goes back to, you know, 
like sonic youth and and them having relationships with brilliant artists and and making sure that each one of their album covers was sort of you know a pairing of that I don't know it's it's hard when people want to be controversial but I you know I don't even understand the word controversial as it pertains to 2015 anymore I'm like I don't I don't understand how any image could really be shocking um, anymore and we're so post uh, you know we're so post visual at this point that it doesn't even seem to be pornographic you know nothing really seems to be pornographic anymore and so um, I think an artist should ha- be able to have anything that they want on the cover of their record unless it's heinous and like that is there's a realm of that um, but at the same time, wasn't there like dwarves covers and you know shit like that? That's like there's just oh, blood, <laughs> blood, yeah. blood on women covers. And, yeah, yeah, exactly. Absolutely. It's a, and that's a satire too. So um, it's just really important that you know artists are able to have whatever imagery they want connected with their music as long as it's le- legal. And beyond that, it should be fine. You know, like maybe potentially I could understand why you can't just have like a Picasso painting as the cover of your record. But beyond that, I don't really understand. But like, problem. remember the Dead Kennedys record? Frank yeah. and Christ? Like, that was such a huge deal. I remember that, the insert with all the penises. Uh-huh. I think that was, and that was just such a huge deal and people were just completely freaking out. Nowadays, that seems so completely, you know, tame. I mean, you know, I, I, I feel like that's just no big deal. So it is funny yeah. how things have changed. I was topless on one of my record covers and had no problem. So I feel like it's about what the image is. You know what I mean? Right. Like, wink, wink. It's like, yeah. my nipples were not covered at Amoeba. I can promise you that. <laughs> However, <laughs> poor Jamie um, yeah. and his, like, cum-stained walls. But I think it's fine. It really, it's like, I mean, that's just a, a, a commerce thing. And that's just, like, um, an issue that, you know, some people have for no reason now because I don't even know that anyone would be offended. Amanda Brown is the co-founder and co-owner of Not Not Fun Records and 100% Silk Records. She's also in the band L.A. Vampires. Amanda, thanks for joining us on The Future of What? Oh, it rolled. Thanks for having me. Everybody comes, everybody goes, what's it all about? No one really knows. Some of them are up, some of them are down, some are in a box, six feet underground. Now everybody says what they wanna say, and even when it's not, they say it anyway. Everybody hears what they wanna hear. We're joined now by Anna Bond. She's the U.S. label manager for Rough Trade Records, and she joins us by phone from New York. Anna, welcome to the future of what? Thank you for having me. So... Anna, you are the U.S. label manager for Rough Trade Records, which is an amazing record label that's been around for years and years. For those members of our listening audience who don't know, can you tell us what a label manager does? 
That's a good question. I would be more prepared to say what a label manager doesn't do. Um, <laughs> it depends on the label, but at Rough Trade, I take care of overall kind of vision for the label in the U.S., overall strategy for artists and for record releases. And I manage a team of product managers, promotional partners, and a lot of other kind of support staff in, you know, working towards making sure our artists and our records get as much attention as they deserve. So what are some of the bands that you are working with here in the U.S.? Currently, we work with a great band from L.A. called Warpaint, who put out a record last year that got a lot of attention. And uh, we have a current release right now from a band called Houndmouth from Louisville, Kentucky area. We've got a really exciting band from Dublin called Girl Band, who are actually none of them girls. They are all... (laughs) young Irish troublemakers and another record we have out this spring is by a woman called Soak who is also young and Irish and maybe makes a little less trouble and yeah we have a lot a lot on our plate right now from a lot of international artists. Awesome so um, you're a good person with your background in retail you're a good person to talk to about this recent issue that's arisen with the global street date So basically what happened was the global street date has been determined, which is going to be Friday. And that means that everything, all product comes out, all albums come out on the same day across the whole world on the same day. There are are a lot of people who are against this, and we'd like to hear Mm -hmm. that opinion. Well, I don't, you know, I'm not against, and I don't think any here labels are against the concept of a global release date. In fact, it would make our lives way easier because when you're doing things like setting up premieres of songs or albums or setting up promotions that are worldwide, it's a hassle, you know, the messaging, this date in the UK and this date in the US, and then there's the Fridays, I think Germany. So that's actually a great idea that we all love. The problem is making it Friday. Um, and <laughs> so tell you know, us the pros and talking, cons of Friday. <laughs> <laughs> when you're talking about the digital marketplace, you know, what, it can be whatever day. doesn't matter. comes out, and there it is. When you're talking about the physical marketplace, however, and I have a background in distribution and working quite closely with a lot of independent retailers as well as bigger accounts, what you do for Tuesday is you get your store stocked with as much as hopefully what they'll need through the weekend. When you have a Tuesday big release, the store orders what they think that they will sell through the weekend. But if you have a big hit, if you have a record that does a lot better than you expect, and they sell out by Wednesday, or they sell most of their stock on Tuesday or Wednesday, they still have time to order in stock by Friday to have it for the weekend. And this seems like such a, you know, a a little logistical concern, but it's really not. Because if you're talking about shipping across the country, that's a four-day ship. And if you run out of stock, if it's a Friday release, you run out of stock on the Friday, it's impossible for you to get stock for the weekend. And the weekend is the biggest, obviously, the biggest sales time for independent retail and any physical retail that's going to be selling music. So the problem is our stores going to now be forced to overorder to make it through the weekend. They already have such difficult issues with cash flow because you know, record stores are pretty strapped. They're not exactly the business model of the future. The ones that are hanging on are fantastic, and they really support particularly independent music. But this is a is a huge blow. And then we're also in the situation now of, are we going to have to expedite shipments for people who run out on the Friday? Are we overnighting them stock to get on the Monday? That's, part, like, incredibly expensive particularly considering how small margins are on vinyl. And we're really talking about vinyl here because that is the format of choice for indie stores. That's what, and, and, you know, a lot of places, vinyl is not returnable. 
when it is returnable, it's often damaged upon return. So, you know, over-ordering vinyl and then having stores return it is really not something we want to happen. And also because of the expense of vinyl, pressing stores to, like, order a lot more stock than they feel comfortable with is something that we also want to avoid. So, you know, Friday really, really causes a ton of problems for independent retail and independent distribution. I mean, we have people talking about, do we have to stay open through the weekend now so that we can ship things out on Saturday? Wow. And that's, you know, that's a huge change. Yeah. So where, why did, were the Europeans pushing for this Friday release date? There are a couple of European countries who already do Friday release dates. It really just kind of depends on the culture of where you are. There are several European countries and Friday is already their date and who knows why. But, you know, in the UK, it's Monday and in the US, it's Tuesday. And so Monday and Tuesday, you know, what if we had a Tuesday release date? What if we had a Wednesday release date? I'm presuming that one of the reasons that digital services and majors were pushing for the Friday is because Friday is a huge sales day for digital specifically, if you think about it. It's payday. It's the day before the weekend. It's the day that people tend to kind of cool down on work a little earlier in the day and might be online kind of casually buying some digital albums. But from a physical standpoint, particularly from an independent standpoint where we're over-indexing on vinyl and independent stores who sell a lot of vinyl. I mean, stores are selling 70% vinyl. There are stores that are 100% vinyl. You know, CD sales were lower than streaming revenue last year for the first time ever. So, you know, as far as physical formats, it's really vinyl that's the future, and it's the one that is most negatively affected by the Friday street date. Yeah, so do the majors, I mean, just for people who are listening, major labels tend to be much less likely to, to press vinyl. As yeah, as they press it or they press it after a street date. Look at something like the D'Angelo record or the Kendrick Lamar record. Those are both kind of surprise album drops. And they'll do vinyl and they'll put it out later and they'll sell it. They'll sell it really well. I mean, if you look at that D'Angelo record, it's been at the top of Retail Coalition vinyl charts for weeks. Because that's an incredible record that everyone wants to own on every format. But, you know, the vinyl for Street Week is less important to them. And it's, it's less important when you're doing so much more of your business digitally. You know, and when you're selling a million records, you can afford to lose maybe a couple thousand vinyl sales. But when you're selling, you know, five or 10,000 records, suddenly losing a thousand vinyl sales seems really problematic. Well, Anna, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Anna Bond is the U.S. label manager for Rough Trade Records. She joined us by phone from her office in New York. Joining me now by Skype is Gavin Godfrey. Gavin covers entertainment for Creative Loafing in Atlanta. Gavin, welcome to the future of what? Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So on this show, we're talking uh, cassette tapes and other hot formats. And mm-hmm. um, Atlanta is a great example of the power of a music format in your scene. So can you tell us a little bit about what's going on with the importance of mixtapes to the Atlanta hip-hop scene? 
Oh, yeah. I mean, mixtapes are, you got to understand, like, a lot of uh, artists in Atlanta have taken an independent route. So mixtapes are just a way for them to spread their music without having to go through major label hassle, uh, having to go through all the kind of hoops and ladders that come with music industry politics. So artists kind of thrive off these mixtapes and mixtapes. And what's crazy about it is a lot of times they're putting out album quality work on these free mixtapes. And so that in turn gives them a catalog to pull from when they're on tour. And these days, artists make most of their money uh, being on the road, constantly doing shows. And they're able to do that because they create this content, put it out for free, and then they use that very same music to uh, perform at their shows. So it's kind of like a very cyclical process here. And the mixtape scene is crazy. I mean, you go to a regular record shop or any kind of place that Hawks Entertainment, even gas stations, and there's a stack of mixtapes sitting there. Like the Chevron up the street from me sells like, Gucci Mane mixtapes and mm-hmm. Waka Flocka mixtapes. And, you know, it's right next to maybe like a set of e-cigarettes. I mean, not very, <laughs> not very class stuff, but, you know, it's, it's a thing that's so prevalent in Atlanta that it's literally everywhere. I mean, there's some grocery stores, depending on what neighborhood you're in, that you could probably find a mixtape. So, wow. everywhere. <laughs> so now, are these mixtapes on cassette tape format or are they CDs or what? All right, so it's it's crazy. There's a, a few things going on. There's, I'd say most of the hip-hop community sticks to CDs, but there's been a new resurgence in Atlanta, especially with like the indie rock groups, to put stuff on cassette. Uh, I know a guy here, Davey Minor, who started an arts, literature, and music kind of hub called Deer Bear Wolf. And what Deer Bear Wolf does is they have artists, and these artists on um, their label can put out their albums via vinyl, cassette, or CD, obviously, but the cassette part has really, really taken off. You know, they put crazy artwork on the cassette. It really brings back that feeling of, at least for me, I was probably, you know, seven or eight years old uh, <laughs> when cassettes were making that transition into CDs. So I don't, I'm not too hip to the nostalgia of it, but people here love it, you know, especially like the Atlanta hipsters. So um, it's very big. It's becoming, I'd say, more prevalent um, on the indie rock scene as far as cassettes, but on the hip hop scene, uh, CDs are still big, I think, just because they can just press them in bulk, and it's. I feel like it might be a little easier to do it just because cassettes are so throwback, so old school that it might be, it might actually cost a little more because they're in less demand, so they're very rare. Right, and we have. I live in Portland, Oregon, so of course there's tons of cassettes where I am, and right. tons of little teeny cassette labels and stuff. But there is, you know, both formats are fairly cheap to produce. I think you have mm-hmm. to, I think what you're saying though is that you have to be pretty aware of your audience and it's like right. some 25 year old hipster is way more likely to have a cassette deck that he got at a thrift store, whereas someone else might have like a CD player or in their car even. Exactly. People still have CD right. players in their car. Not that exactly. I, you know, at this point I only have like satellite radio or something. I mean, cars right. are so crazy. Right. I just take my car to my, to my cell phone. So I don't even, yeah, exactly. see, I don't even know what that is anymore. <laughs> I know. I don't even know what's in there. That's what I was, I should really admit that. <laughs> what's in there. Right. <laughs> so Atlanta is home to like Outkast, Goody Mob, a bunch of R&B singers. And there's really talented producers there. But do you guys, do you, would you personally say that the underground scene, the underground hip hop scene is thriving there like it did in the 90s and 2000s? Oh, yeah. It's, I think it's definitely uh, on the rise. Like I said before, there's a lot of independent artists. Uh, for example, there's a collective out of here called Awful Records, and there's literally 15 artists. And these kids shoot their own videos, do their own photography, produce their own music, write their own lyrics. Um, it's a collection of 
rappers, R&B singers, producers, graphic designers, fashion designers. And like that alone is just one collective. Atlanta's popping out a lot of independent kind of hip-hop collectives. Um, another one, for example, would be 2-9, who recently inked a deal with Interscope Records under Mike Will made its imprint, which is called Eardrummers. And 2-9 mm. was just another independent underground hip-hop collective who had been grinding in Atlanta for the past couple of years. A bunch of young kids, not one of them's over 25, but they've all been rocking Atlanta shows, like doing the Morehouse, Black College Circuit, to making their way to actual venues for the past three or four years. And they finally inked a major deal. So that kind of a lot of people saw that, and uh, that sparked things in the underground movement because a lot of people tied to 2-9, you know, saw that as something that was very tangible, like if 2-9 can do it, we can do it. So now it seems like there's new collectives in Atlanta popping up. There's new artists who are all about creating their own lane. You know, they mm -hmm. take every part of the music-making process into their own hands. They're all self-taught, you know, and sometimes that's, you get a mixed uh, a batch of, you know, product with that. Sometimes Awful Records, for example, some of their videos aren't the best quality, but they'll put out three or four videos in a week and it constantly keeps people's minds on what they're doing because there's that visual. And then, you know, I did an interview with them for Creative Loafing and they told me that in the year 2014, they estimated that they put out, I believe, 250 different songs and about 35 music videos. Wow. Which is insane. Yeah. You couldn't do that. You couldn't do that on a label without going broke. So yeah. these kids are teaching themselves how to do that. And it's just crazy. There's, I think every night in Atlanta, I mean, you could find a show to go to, an underground show, and it could be anywhere from a small hole in the wall, you know, place here, somebody's basement, somebody's living room, to like one of the bigger venues in Atlanta. And what's happening is a lot of these bigger, older, major guys in the business are coming down here and checking that out. For example, uh, Lior Cohen, who's starting his own 300 label, but it was a big deal at Warner Brothers. He came down here and was scouting a young guy named OG Mako, who's been making a lot of noise and scouting Migos, this trio um, out of Atlanta, and then they're also on his label. And so what's happening you're seeing is before these kind of indie do-it-yourself artists that people laughed at, labels are starting to watch now because they are trying to align themselves with, with what's hip, what's cool, and so they're, you know, they're staying, staying abreast of that and keeping tabs on what's happening in, happening in Atlanta that's not necessarily on the mainstream radar. Right. And there's a lot of people mm -hmm. who would say that's scary in a certain way because it's like heralding the death of a scene when like the, yeah. you know, the major players show up. It's like you, you guys finally made enough noise to be noticed and now you got noticed. Mm -hmm. So it's like, is right. that going to be the end of the scene? I hope not. I mean, you know, and right. Atlanta is a very resilient uh, city. It's, you know, it's, it's had very strong scenes throughout the years and Portland's sort of a similar city that way. I mean, I'm originally from New York, which really okay. had the real cassette tape mixtape scenes of the eighties, you know, which sort of launched hip hop, you know, and getting played on the radio by just like one or two DJs. That was like a real example of a scene, like really blowing up into a huge nationwide thing. But since right. then, I can't really, it's tough to say that there's been much of a scene in New York you know, a little bit of Brooklyn mm -hmm. in the 90s, late 90s, but it's it's tough. You know, these bigger towns, it's it's tough to really say there's a scene because I think there's just too many people. Right, right. And that's the kind of the, the great thing about Atlanta, especially with the music scene is, I mean, we like to, especially us, us native Atlantans, us kids born and raised, we like to think of ourselves as a big, fun city. But ultimately, we're just one of those cities where you can make it as big as you want or as small as you want. And I think the the kids here who make music realize that. They're making connections. You see the same kind of kids out at different events because they know that 
on top of performing and putting out music, they need to network and meet people. And it feels like the community in Atlanta is very welcoming to that, very open to that. You know, you get kids and different artists from outside of the city who come here and they're easily embraced because everyone's kind of pushing this, hey, let's let's get together and make Atlanta great because in turn we'll all prosper. And it's really cool to see that. And I feel like that's really only happened in the last few years here. That's awesome. Yeah. So let's get back to the mix tips because I'm, I'm really fascinated by the idea. So it's like you'll have an artist, they'll do like a really professional sounding recording and then they'll put it out as a mixtape and, you know, they'll sell it in like gas stations and stuff. And a bunch of people will buy it and then come to their shows. But are they mm-hmm. also doing like, are they doing stuff on YouTube? How else are they? Uh, yeah, a lot of it is. Videos too, as much as they're putting out mixtapes, they're also putting out videos to kind of complement that. It's like, as they lead up to the mixtape, they'll be they'll release like one single, and immediately following that single, they'll follow it up with a video. So it's kind of like, you know, which is which is crazy. A lot of times, you know, I would say back in the late 90s, early 2000s, these artists would put out their album, and then after that, you would find, you'd be like, okay, I can't wait for them to release this video. I can't mm-hmm. wait for them to release this video. Right. Now you're seeing artists do these whole campaigns where they're not also pushing the audio they're pushing the visual to get right. you amped up for the audio that's to come and it's also you know what's interesting about it is you know these artists are also just push finding different unique ways to push themselves and and get their word out there this young kid rory from atlanta who just recently signed to columbia records when he put out his first free project called Indi- called the indigo child he uh set up his website to where the only way you could get the mixtape was you had to beat this computer game that he had set up, which was kind of like, it was like Temple Run. And you had this kid on a skateboard, you had to jump over holes and ditches or else you would die, and you had to reach a certain score. Once you got that certain score, it unlocked your way to get the mixtape. Wow. So they're getting creative, they're finding different ways. It's not also necessarily just like hitting up djbooth.net or live mixtapes or thatpiss.com and saying, hey, put out my mixtape. It's that too, but they try to find more kind of creative ways so it's not like, hey, it's just another artist who put out a mixtape this week. It's like, oh my God, did you beat that video game to get Rory's mixtape? Did you see Migo's new video? That's crazy. I can't wait to hear what the rest of this is going to sound like. Wow. And so it's, it's, it's funny, but it's also, I think there's two schools of thought on it. Uh, I mentioned that Leo Cohen coming down to Atlanta to check out Migos. They're his artists. And I saw a video from a friend who was who was documenting his time here. And in the video, he's having a discussion with the Migos manager because the Migos manager says, hey, man, we put out like three mixtapes in the last two months and they've been crazy. The streets are talking. And Lior says, you put out three mixtapes with album quality music for free. He's like, why would you do that? <sighs> he's like, you know the demand is there. These same people are showing up to the shows. They're downloading the mixtapes like, like crazy. Why not have them pay a dollar, two dollars for the mixtape? And it kind of blew the manager's mind because he's like, well, that's not what this is about. We want the people to have music and not have to just work for it. So, you know, there's different schools of thought on mixtapes. Some people charge, some people put them out for free. Some people might make you play video games to get them. But I think ultimately what the artists just want is to have their music get out there without having to go through any kind of hoops and ladders. And that way, the next show they have, they can demand X amount of money because they're going to say the kids are going to be in here singing every single word off of my mixtape that I gave him for free. Right. Can you speak at all to, that's interesting to me, because something that I've seen is that a lot of lyric sites are popping up lately where mm-hmm. people are just like, they, they, they're almost even more interested in the lyrics. Like they really chase them down and try to find out exactly what they're saying. Do you guys find that that's a big... 
Yeah, I mean, lyric, I mean, lyrics just like any kind of. I feel like what what's still always prevalent in Atlanta is everybody loves slang and everybody likes a new word. I think the new one right now is on fleek, and I can't remember. I think it was actually a Detroit artist said it on a mixtape, and it made its way down here. And on fleek just means on point. But you'll hear the kids say on fleek, on fleek, and uh, wow. especially say like there's a there's like a mixtape. Say Kendrick Lamar from L.A. or somewhere puts out a mixtape. You know, kids from Atlanta to everywhere who want to look up those lyrics. I think that you're you're seeing especially on on mixtapes from different artists now. Um, I think especially when Kendrick Lamar came out and kind of set the tone for young artists like under 30 who were absolutely obliterating music lyrically. He kind of set the tone. And so in Atlanta, I would say a lot of artists are stepping up their lyrical game and, and, and the kids are definitely paying attention to that. I mean, there's still people, you know, you might not have to be a Kendrick Lamar. There's people here who still debate the genius of Gucci Mane's lyrics mm-hmm. or the absurdity of 2 Chains. I was having a conversation with somebody the other day about how we were missing the 2 Chains mixtape. It's been a while. How we love 2 Chains lyrics because he says dad jokes all the time. Like, he's like, <laughs> you're like, what? That's That shouldn't be funny, but it actually really is funny. Uh-huh. And so... I think what's also happening with lyrics is, yeah, the kids are looking them up, but they're also having, people have appreciation for different types of lyrics down in Atlanta. You know, mm-hmm. as in New York, I think they're still on the, you got to sound like Nas or Jay or Biggie, but down here, we just like fun, fun wordplay. It doesn't have to like blow us, you know, blow your mind or send you running to the dictionary. As long as it's clever, you can tell it's a thought, even though if it's kind of a ridiculous bad thought. But I think, um, <laughs> lyrics uh kids here love the lyrics just because they're weird they're crazy and they also get slang from them i can't even understand like my 17 year old niece anymore because she just talks <laughs> like a amigos record and i'm just like i don't i don't understand i don't speak young scooter so <laughs> slow down for me that's amazing so if a young hip-hop artist came to you today and said i need to figure out how to get my stuff out there in a way that is gonna like you know really catch people's attention well, whose career, like, who do you think is doing it right now in a way that you'd be like, oh, you should totally do it like they do it? Oh, that's a good question. I'd say, um, well, the first trick really is just to do it. You know, mm-hmm. I was in, there was a group here in Atlanta named Goldyard who had just been sitting on music, just sitting and sitting and sitting on it. Um, and they finally put out their new EP a, a year ago. I don't know if I can say this. It's called Fuck Culture. Mm-hmm. And it blew up. A lot of people loved it. They got a lot of attention. And, you know, I'd spoken to them and I was like, what took so long? And they were like, you know, we just, everybody said that, just put it out, just put it out, just put it out. And then, you know, you finally put it out and it has legs. You see where it can go. So you're always good as the content. And I think somebody here in Atlanta who probably is one of the best of that is the Awful Records crew that I mentioned. That's the model I think a lot of artists are following, which is you pretty much try to take as much of the music making process and producing process into your own hands. So these kids are teaching themselves how to use Final Cut to edit their videos. These kids are constantly putting out music. They're making their own merchandise, which is another big thing. You know, the artists are also not only, not into just pushing their records on CDs and cassettes, but they're also making T-shirts with their names on it and hoodies and snapbacks. They're really pushing that stuff at their show. So these awful records kids, I spent a full day with them one time just like hanging out with all 15 different personalities and it's crazy they'll do things like drive around Atlanta and see a location that they think they should shoot a video at and one guy will send a group text to the entire collective with a drop pin and a picture and say hey check out this location I think somebody here should shoot a video here the next day or maybe in a couple hours they'll go there and shoot the video and it's just they're relentless I've never seen 
a crew or group of people who are able to do that and just constantly, constantly put that out. Well, Gavin, thank you so much for joining us here on The Future of What. Thank you. Take care. All right. Thank you. Bye. And that's our show. The music we played today was used by permission of the artists. You heard Divine Mob by Survival Knife, You Can Stay But You Gotta Go by Quasi, This Town Doesn't Have Enough Bars for Both of Us by Gospel Music, and of course our theme song, Mind Your Own Business by Delta 5. If you have a question you want answered on the show, please email us at thefutureofwhatshow at gmail.com. Our episodes are archived at killrockstars.com backslash thefutureofwhat, and you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Our program was engineered by Reed Harvey and is produced by John Sepulvedo and Will Watts. Special thanks to Digital One Studios. I'm Portia Sabin, president of Kill Rockstars. See you next week. Stars.